everybody welcome back to the upside six uh, ah hello everybody and welcome back to the upside Weeks nba draft podcast the podcast the highest ceiling i'm your host bryce hendrick she always with a great cooper klein and we're doing something that uh we have wanted to do for probably over a year now we talked about this last year as something we really wanted to do and then summer for everyone just got really busy last year um and then it didn't happen and uh you know now with just Coop and I were like, uh, we want to try and do things weekly. We missed last week because I was moving, um, but we came back. We're back with a vengeance, and we're going to go through some past drafts. And specifically what we're doing with this first part of this is focusing on bigs and how three consecutive drafts really shaped the modern big man. And we're starting with the 2014 NBA draft. And I'll go through and talk about all the bigs who were drafted and, and all that and those who have made an impact. We're talking about five bigs today. We'll tell you they are later. Um, but before we get into it, Coop, how are you doing? And then what was kind of your thought processes? Because, you know, full disclosure, this was a lot of your idea, a lot of your baby that you kind of sold me on as this is like a really interesting uh, query almost to kind of work through. What was your thought process when you were coming up with this idea? So originally this was... Uh... This was about 15 and 16 and it's Chris Tapps and just the shit show that that created. And that will be a pod for another day, uh, you know, here in the next few weeks. But you, I don't think that you can tell the story of the modern big without this 2014 class. I think that the idea of, you know, a center in the modern NBA is almost perfectly told by the five centers that we'll talk about here today. Um, and it's it's a really interesting, I, I think it'll be a really fun discussion. I'm, I'm really, really excited. Uh, it's just gonna be, it's gonna be a bit of a mess, but I, I think that this is gonna be a really big opportunity for us to like take a step back and be like, this is how we've gotten where we are. Right. It's the part like it's the purpose of any normal history class, any normal whatever. But we're taking that and we're trying to do it in a way where we're able to apply it moving forward. We picked out guys who we think this really helps, you know, they're like it really helps us see modern big men and you know what these guys have done and, and what they've transformed the big man position into and, and helps us evaluate you know, the guys who are going to come into the league and continue to be modern bigs and revolutionize the position themselves. Uh, and yeah, this this is really just the uh, the brainchild of my fetishization of big men. But I'm really excited. I was also moving last week. Um, so it was, it was just a nightmare week last week. But I'm very excited to be here. Very excited. And if you're ready, Bryce, we can just start off with the man, the myth, the legend himself. So I actually do want to interrupt you because I want to transport us back to 2014 before we talk about these prospects. And I'm going to do my best to try and explain what happened with this draft with brevity, but also uh, specificness. So at the top of this 2014 draft were Andrew Wiggins and Jabari Parker. And these were guys who came into the season as the projected one and two. But then in the middle of the season, 
Joel Embiid worked his way up to being looked at as the best prospect. And while I wouldn't call that consensus, I think we sometimes look back at this draft and think it was always Wiggins and Parker. Because if you look at preseason mocks, they were one and two. And then obviously, the end of the season, they were one and two. But there was a stretch in the middle of the season where it was Joel Embiid. And then when Joel Embiid got hurt and all the stuff came out about how specifically bad the injuries were, Wiggins and Parker jumped him again. Um, we're not going to talk about Wiggins and Parker, but I just kind of want to give you guys that realm of thought. And then after Embiid, uh, sort of an interesting group. Aaron Gordon, Dante Exum, Marcus Smart, Julius Randle, Nick Skauskas, Noah Vonley, and Alfred Payton round out the top 10. You would call that a somewhat disappointing top 10, but it probably stacks up about average, maybe just slightly below average. Like if you were to widen it up against all the other top 10s from the past 30 years of draft, it's probably about an average. You produced uh, a bogus defensive player of the year, but really good playoff contributor in Marcus Smart, obviously an MVP and, you know, potential championship superstar in Joel Embiid. Had a couple busts in there. Aaron Gordon, solid player. Julius Randle, multi-time all-star now. I think made an all-NBA team. So just kind of wanted to give you guys a, a thought process there. And as we do that, Coop, I want to throw this to you. With Joel Embiid, what was his, like, perception? How did the how did the league, how did fans, how did draft analysts look at Embiid at the time of the draft? So I think that it's really interesting. Uh, so it starts, I mean, Jonathan Wasserman, I think, puts it best uh, at full strength. He's a game changer who offers centerpiece potential as a go-to offensive option and dominant rim protector. Uh, talking about his fit specifically with the Cavs and how they have the time to, you know, take their time with him and not rush him back. But he talks about how he's crazy skilled with post moves for days, jump hooks, stream shakes, up and unders spin moves uh like he is pretty consensusly like I, I think four different guys in my research talk about him as their top option if not for the injuries um and I I think this is like we've talked about how much we disagree with this but we're also you know not teams we don't have access to this medical information uh Chad Ford from ESPN says Embiid is the top center prospect a force on both ends needs to work on his feel for the game and stay out of foul trouble uh but he gets described as an Elijah Wan type talent like really often for, for somebody who like can't do a lot of really basic basketball stuff it's really interesting the uh, KOC calls him the no-brainer pick uh, at number one overall at a certain point uh, like you talked about around in January his perception really starts to shift. And until that injury stuff comes out, he's seen as this top guy, as like a dominant, dominant force. Um, and I I have to, you know, I, I don't want to insert my, uh, you know, my, oh, you're going to have to cut that. This is the words escaping me. Um, my evaluation in here too early, but it, the talent is just so obvious. He can do so many things while like so obviously not knowing what he's doing that it's it's astounding. And I, I think that that's what people latch on to in the mainstream. And I, I don't think that they were wrong for that. Uh, so I'll be honest, passing on a talent like Embiid because of injuries only to draft someone whose career was, not only was he worse, 
but also his career was ruined by injuries. Seems like a complete, like, I mean, what are we doing moment? And then also you dropped his teammate at number one, who anytime they shared the floor was clearly worse. Like, I, I, I don't know. I just, I think drafting, not drafting Joel Embiid one was, it's dumb in hindsight, but I also think like even trying to detach myself, I would have been like, no, nah, you should just draft it one at the time. That does kind of take me to, what he succeeded at in the league versus what I really latched onto as a prospect, I do think is different. So I want to start with how he succeeded in the league. Like what has really worked for him at the NBA? Um, I think the biggest one is that he is, I mean, probably the most efficient post scorer in the league in terms of like someone who is consistently like just has the ball with his back to the basket. Cause like Jokic is a great post scorer, but he's not doing a ton of like pure post-up stuff. Like that's, he's more of like a, a, a short roll big man who likes to pop and runs to each other. Like does all this versatile stuff on offense versus where Embiid is a bit more simple, um, a bit more wants to play with his back to the basket or wants to face up uh, really uses his jab game. Obviously people are going to point to like foul drawing. Yes. But he's also just like the biggest, strongest motherfucker out there when he's on the court. Um, and he's been, good defensively i would say but i would not say he has lived up to what i saw in his tape defensively which is not a slight he's an mvp whatever but when i was watching it my thought was and this is and beat as a prospect to get, to get back to kansas where he was skinnier probably about 40 pounds lighter even like he he really bulked up since his time at kansas um he was a lot more raw didn't really know what he was doing a lot i would not say his feel was bad i think that is a a misnomer a misuse of that term uh he was just erratic but i thought there was a world where he could be like in his tape i see best defender in the nba like that's what i thought when i was first watching his tape was this man is a monster rim protector who is while he is not super learned footwork wise. He is very coordinated in a very Wembenyama esque way, um, where it's like he is not like his footwork is not technically correct, but he manages to just flow effortlessly around the paint because it doesn't matter. Like he's too coordinated. He just knows how to move his body well enough, which I actually think is different than what i expected because so much of like what you go back and read is like oh he just kind of flails around sometimes and does all this and it's like he kind of looks like that like because he he doesn't really seem to have control of his arms his arms are kind of all over the place but like his actual lower body coordination i thought was like already excellent in his time at kansas and i thought that i shouldn't say i thought but like watching it my thought was how is this guy not like a multi-time defensive player of the year uh, Cooper, are you with me? Like, do you was your eye also on him defensively more as a prospect, or did you kind of notice more of the offensive game that would eventually become his calling card in the NBA? So I'll I'll start with the offense and then work my way backwards because I think, like you said, the offense has become what he's been known for. I think that so much of like his ability on offense is that fluidity. Uh, there's not very many guys who are that coordinated and powerful uh, and are able to maintain composure under pressure like Embiid does. And I think that that is the, like his skills have evolved. He's gotten better as a shooter. He's gotten better as a passer. 
But at the end of the day, it's always been about his ability to maintain his composure when there's a double, when there's a triple team, right? And he has moves, he has kickouts. He's not going to get flustered when guys are like all over him. He's And he's really learned to leverage that and manipulate that on offense to become an MVP caliber player. Uh, it's kind of a like almost a grift, but I, you know, I don't, I don't want to degrade him <laughs> by saying he's a grifter. But defensively, I think what really stood out is his ability to move and hedge and recover in that really weird scheme where like Kansas would always send two to the ball, right? Like almost consistently and just constantly be in rotation on the back line. Uh, it wasn't very cohesive for like a guy like Wayne Selden, who is constantly over rotating and Andrew Wiggins, who has no idea what he's doing defensively. And then like three okay defenders around him. And then Embiid, who just in the paint could be everywhere all at once. Like guys are flying in. He's flying in from the weak side, getting clean blocks. Um, I think, I think the word erratic that you used is really I think that that's the key takeaway because he's like when he is locked in and he has, you know, his duty as the big man and he's not being switched out onto perimeter players and and being forced to be a four. I think he looked really good. It's just that he played with another big man and some teams would pull him out way too often. And Kansas was all too willing to let him be pulled out to the perimeter because Andrew Wiggins can't switch or can't rotate or Wayne Selden is on the other side of the floor, or their other big man just doesn't want to leave the paint. Uh, And he was okay in switches. Like he's massive and he's decently mobile, but I mean, I, I like, there are just not guys (laughs) who can move like that. And then also like he was decent in drop and he covered ground so well within like a circle within four or five feet of the rim. It was just spectacular. And you can see, like, obviously he had his moments. He gets he gets punked a little bit. But, I mean, like you talked about, just a little bit of refinement, a little bit of time to really work on that. I mean, it's it's hard not to see that deep boy potential. He was incredible defensively. Yeah, I mean, I would go so far as to say that, like, of the bigs I've scouted, this is obviously different, right? I, I'm not going to fully divorce myself from who he's becoming in the NBA because that's impossible. I, I did not watch him back in... 2013 because i was 11 um i was not i was not a a big old draft scout back then if i'm being for real but um you know what i what i gathered from this is that i probably would have him probably third all time in like my of all the bigs i've scouted in terms of like how i view their defensive ceiling like it's Wemby at one and then it's him or mobley at two like i i really think and he probably has not lived up to that in the league actually like because his his load has gotten so big offensively i do want to transition back to the offense because i think if you go back and you read scouting reports from the time you would almost think they're kind of calling him dumb in a basketball sense which i i get how you could see that from a cursory watch but what i see and and, and again this is with the hindsight of knowing who he's become but what i see on tape on, on offense and defense is someone who is an extraordinarily quick processor almost too quick for his own good at sometimes he is almost too quick twitch like toward the extent that he's traveling or he's like because he's trying to do too much because he's he's taking in so much information at once and like i think that's part of what's what's helped him like 
part of why he's such a good post scorer is that he has not just that he's big and strong, but he has so many moves in his bag. You know, he has the the rip through sweep, he has the jab, stutter rip, he has whatever back to the basket jump hooks and and all this stuff. And it's because he's like so reactive. He's extraordinarily reactive as a player on both ends. And you know, in some of his tape, you could see him rush some moves which would soon become his uh his specialty like he had this one play in the game i was watching uh which i cannot remember who it's against for the life of me where he did like the the really high up fake that has now become like this thing that he pulls out all the time that dudes bite on and he traveled on it but it's like oh it's like an interesting to see that move like in its early stages and he clearly has that where it's like he has a lot of things that he wants to do and he's not predetermining it. He's just a bit too sped up. And I think what really clicked for him in the league is that either the league caught up to him in a way that college basketball just doesn't like, like little things like lots of times travels on those moves are just not called in the regular season in the NBA, if I'm being completely honest, or, you know, or it's that he slowed down enough to get to a point where he's truly masters moves. Cause you wouldn't call him, you know, if you if I just threw on an Embiid game right now, you wouldn't be like, oh, that's someone who's super quick twitch. But when you watch him in college, he definitely was. And some of that is just comparison to college competition. Obviously, it's a higher level. But I think some of that is that he's learned to control that quick twitch to make it to where he can create advantages without turning the ball over, without rushing and getting himself into bad spots. And what I have seen like MVP offensive star in his game back then, probably not. No, if I'm being completely honest, I just don't. I, but I also like for so long and it's still sort of in my head. Like I don't always see that with bigs because I don't think of bigs as primary playmakers. And generally when I think of MVP type players, I think of primary playmakers. Um, and uh, Joel Embiid is still not that he's the primary offensive option, but he's not really the primary playmaker per se. Um but I just, I mean, I, I think there was always the inklings there, right? Like people compare him to Olajuwon. I didn't watch enough prime Olajuwon, but it's obviously kind of worked out, right? Like that's probably his closest comp to who he is now, right? He's not that level of defender at this point, and he's not that level of quote unquote winner. But uh, you just see a lot of that. Uh, Coop, do you have any kind of other thoughts on, on what you saw watching his tape before we get into what we've learned and what we're going to take away? So I, I think like what, what you're talking about is that they see like a lot of scouts talk about like, oh, he's low IQ. He needs to improve that. But it's not his actual feel for the game. It's like his physical, like he still hasn't learned how his body works, I think, like you could tell that he hit a growth spurt. It's like you go back and watch some I watched a little bit of the Montverde tape, right? Just like the easy stuff you could find. And it's like him running under the basket because he doesn't realize that he's seven foot three or seven foot one, right? And he's like, oh, I think I know where I am because I'm so massive. I don't know where I am. And like that kind of stuff takes time. And I, I think that you could slowly see it develop over the course of the year. Um, and obviously it it developed in the league. I think that just like, Figuring out your body when you have these like very obvious skills, very obvious like understanding of space, how he operates in space. Um, <laughs> other than screening, I, I think Prospect Embiid is the worst screener of any big man I've ever watched. But uh, he is just like, there's so much obvious 
like underlying stuff with him that you would, even if like the injury stuff is real, or even if you don't buy his physical development, you still have to bet on, especially when your other options are Wiggins and Parker. And like, it's so much harder to sell yourself when Embiid is a special mover with special, you know, vision and special moves and like a bag for somebody who like can't use his own body correctly. He has so many moves in his bag as like a 19 year old. It's crazy. Like he, it's yeah, insanity. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. And that's, that's really what it is. And when I get to what I want to take away from Embiid, um, I think the first one is that I can definitely get a bit too boxy with prospects. And what I mean by that is that I, and I have caught myself doing this a couple times, um, but I can still do it where, because I, I'm so, I'm trying to find what this person absolutely will do in the league. And then when I, when I find that, I'm like, okay, so that's who they are. You know, if they're a, if they're a guy who takes like a ton of like mid range pull-ups out of the pick and roll, and then they also learned like a couple basic reads out of the pick and roll. I, I, pigeonhole them in as oh that's a backup pick and roll point guard who can create some shots in the mid-range doesn't really get to the rim can make some easy reads but that's that's the wrong way to look at things and and i know that instinctually but sometimes when i get down in the minutia of draft especially when i'm at that point where i'm watching like eight games a day like i do through the summer where i'm just grinding tape and i can definitely do that where it's like what's the simple way to describe this player's game and i think Embiid is a reminder that there's so much more to players than that box you put them in because were i to you know be writing it i i would have probably argued for Embiid at one i i do strongly believe that like i did with with wemby this year um like i i i argued for um back in the day i argued for mobley at two over someone like a jalen green Uh, i think that's somewhat analogous to Embiid and and um and beat and and Wiggins and um I I think I I would have said oh like at the very least he's a rim runner who could be like a, a tertiary scorer when it turns out he's become this like uber elite post up ISO scorer like who's also a great play finisher we we underrate how good of a role man he is because he doesn't really do it a ton but like and it, it's a reminder to not get too locked into the role a guy is going to play. And instead, just get an understanding for their their skills, including like sort of the the softer skills. Like, like yes, Embiid had solid touch, and he had a bag of post moves, but he also had the soft skill to be someone who could clearly handle a lot of information at one time, despite being super raw and new to the game. Like that combination is that matters that means something and obviously i can't get in a room with a guy and talk to him and figure out what their personality is like but you could tell some of that on the screen you could tell at the time that wiggins was not someone who could do that that's why they were so keen to not let him be the low man because they knew that wiggins could not make low man rotations that's and that's still not something you could do wiggins is still not someone who can make low man rotations as a 30 year old now or whatever like and beat had that and that really matters and especially when we're talking about bigs and guys who are going to, you know, fill what is anymore 
the most competitive position in basketball with the highest replacement value, but also at times the highest level of import still, where obviously the last three MVPs have been bigs and one just won a championship as the best player. It's really important to understand that type of stuff. So Coop, do you have, do you have a similar or different takeaways? Like just what do you feel like you've learned from this process with Embiid? I mean, you put it really well and be, I, I think just like you can spend all the time you want looking at micro skills and like, oh, how does this guy angle his screens and all this stuff. But if at the end of the day, like you talked about, he instinctually understands the game despite not <laughs> having played it for like more than four or five, like, you know, maybe four years and is so physically gifted, you know, you, you kind of just have to take a back seat to that, right? Like you have to let the special kind of show you that it's there and show you like the obviousness of this guy. Um, I mean, he had all the, all the intangible bullshit you could want. He would like always come up every single time you needed a big play. Every single time Kansas needs a big play. It's Embiid there doing something, fighting for boards. This dude was out of shape. Like he he was not in shape for the entire season. And he hustled and he gave a shit and he'd handle triple teams and make a, a great kick out and just create advantages every single time he touched the ball. Yeah, he'd travel a lot and he'd make a lot of stupid mistakes like that. But at the end of the day, if you're at that point where you're so physically, like I, I just not... He, had, he hadn't caught up to his body. And if you're at that point and you're still able every single time down the floor, you are an automatic massive advantage. You have to just be like, well, there is not another player in this draft who's giving me that. Andrew Wiggins or Jabari Parker or Dante Exum does not give you an automatic advantage every single time they touch the ball. And if they were like, if, if, if they had Embiid's experience, they wouldn't be playing D1 college basketball for Kansas right now, right? I, I think it just, it was so obvious and people talk themselves out of it because that's what we do in draft time. You overthink things and the injury stuff scared people off. And especially at the top of the draft, if you're a, if you're a team who is bad enough to get the number one pick, be patient because these players are worth it. The players with the special are worth waiting and worth taking the risk on. And I think that as much as like, I, I think Embiid has cemented that as much as any player can. Absolutely. I mean, and it's worth noting, I mean, Embiid didn't play after his draft year. He didn't even play the next year, right? He set out two seasons with injury stuff before coming and playing. And, you know, that means a player drafted after him at the same position, Jaleel Okafor had his rookie year, before him which is uh something we'll talk about next episode but um just something to keep in mind we are going to move to i mean the obvious next place to go but would not have been the obvious next place to go back in 2014 the 41st pick uh famously taken during a taco bell ad was nikola Jokic, and we all know who nikola Jokic has become now right multi-time mvp um probably should have won it three times was just the best player on a championship team uh the the uh you know serbian god the uh 
There's got to be another good nickname. I, I'm trying to fit Sean Bourne in there Master somewhere. Master of but Horses. Master of know. Horses. There you go. But to take you back to the time, here's some of the names drafted above him. At 20 was Bruno Caboclo. Um, there's a good one. Um, don't I honestly don't know some of these players. Uh, I'm going to take a guess and say Mitch McGarry from Michigan was a big. He was. Uh, was nicknamed White Thunder. Um, so there you go. White Thunder was drafted above him. Um, CJ Wilcox from UW, who was, you know, a shooting guard, but was never good. Um, you know, guys like that. Uh, Kyle Anderson, name you might recognize. That's a fine pick, I suppose. Clay Anthony Early uh, from Wichita State was also sort of a big uh, who was drafted ahead of him. Johnny O'Brien and Jarnell Stokes. Um and then the three picks before him actually all sort of hit Spencer Dinwiddie, Jeremy Grant, Glenn Robinson, and then Nicole Jokic. That's an all-time 38, 39, 40, 41. That's incredible. Um, shout out to this draft for that and that alone. But after talking about Jokic, he was someone who it's it's notable that when he was drafted was very young. A lot like a lot of European guys, a lot like someone like a Poku, right? Like very young at the time of his draft. A lot of the sell for him was that he had really excelled in like the basketball without borders camps and stuff like that, like stuff that Coop and I don't really have access to. Um, so we had to go back, try and find FIBA tape, which he came off the bench for his FIBA team, uh, a team that lost in the final to uh, a team led by Alfred Payton and Jaleel Okafor. And oh, there's, there was someone else on that team who was like super fun. I can't even remember um Aaron Gordon uh there was a moment in that game where Nicole Jokic blocked Aaron Gordon um shout out to that forever um so you know just kind of a, just kind of something to keep in mind like he played for KKMiga BMAX which was at the time and has still been a prospect powerhouse in a lot of ways uh it, it's the Serbian Kentucky as a lot of people like to say um and that's kind of a good way to put it where it's like that's they a lot of times, if if there's Eastern European basketball talent, it's either them or Chabona uh, who produced them. Um, so just, but he was not like super highly touted. Uh, you can go back and find interviews where he would say stuff like, "Yeah, I think my main goal is to be like a really good Euroleague center." Um, so you know, kind of funny how things have gone. And if we're gonna talk about why he succeeded in the NBA, it's obvious he is, for my money, the greatest passer in the history of the sport. Um, and he can hit shots and he's seven feet tall and can, you know, score on any mismatch and even some not mismatches whenever he wants to in the post. Um, and he is smart enough defensively to not be a disaster. That's really it. So Coop, I want to ask you when you were watching his tape, were uh, I, I guess the first question is, were you able at all to divorce yourself from, who he is now or in the back of your mind were you just always thinking like this is the guy who became a, a two-time mvp world champion and like whatever uh so it's kind of like obviously it's impossible to separate yourself but young Jokic is like there's he's a four right and i think like he's throwing passes to big men and that made it a little bit easier right like he's not out there as like in pure drop throwing dimes to a cutting Aaron Gordon. Most of his dimes that year are to their big man, right? To the five. He's a, he really shows off his feel as a passer on the interior. 
He's also notably grown since then. He was maybe 6'10". Like, like he was as short. a prospect, he was he was six nine six ten, and he's a comfortable seven foot now. So, like, it is important to note that he has grown since he got drafted. Yeah, he also like forced a lot of passes. He overpassed for somebody who like <clears throat> is like his touch is incredible, and it's obvious because he's like there are moments like he hit he hit uh fifteen three pointers in twenty five games in the Adriatic League, and at least three of those were like off some kind of movement like he comes off a screen and is like still kind of moving while he takes the shot like his touch is so obviously incredible uh but he just like every single time he loves drawing two to the ball he loves navigating pick and rolls as either side of the pick and roll ball handler uh he can like dribble a little bit he does i mean it's like you see the the basics of like Oh, you know, he's his handle is functional because he's like just so solid and so big that you can't really get into his handle. And then he'll draw a second defender and pick some funky ass angle and drop it off to the big man. But he (laughs) he almost like there are a lot of times where if he's on the perimeter, he'll create open looks for his teammates. But on the interior, he's forcing stuff over and over and over again. He's overpassing. There's like not very much deception, uh, which is, you know, kind of weird for, you know, Jokic, but it was a, it was a really weird experience. And it kind of reminded me of the 20, I think it was the 2019 FIBA team, like the Serbian FIBA team where they would regularly bench him for, for a Serbian league center who played defense. And it's like, what, what are we doing here? At the end of the day, you have to play your best player and find a way to play him and, like every time he got on the floor, kind of like Embiid, he was like, he would create advantages. He would take advantage of advantages. There was this one, the one play that really, that really stands out is I think it's Micic. Him and Micic run a pick and roll. He screens, rolls, gets the ball and like goes up and then kind of like dips down and drops a little nasty drop off pass between the two defenders to Micic, who's like cutting to the basket. And it results automatic, you know, wide open layup. It's just like he even then is like doing stuff that you just don't see from players ever. I think, not to jump ahead, but I think my biggest takeaway from the Jokic tape was that it's a reminder that there are some guys who can like the NBA is obviously the highest level of play in the, in the world, but there are also some guys who can only hit their ceiling in the NBA. And I think Jokic is the perfect example of that because Europe is, is all about uh, scheme and system. Even college is like that too. Scheme and system trump talent. And that's why the truly transcendent talent kind of have to make it in the league or they don't make it at all because the the you know Europe has no place for heliocentric wing shot creators, right? So like if you if you're if that's your thing, you're a heliocentric guy who has to make a hundred decisions a game. It's NBA or bust. Like if you can't like Giddy, I think in some ways is sort of like that, right? Like if Josh Giddy can't make it in the NBA, I don't think he's like some great Euroleague player. He's just like a good NBL player probably because. In the Euro League, like they don't have guys like him who 
are his size and make that that volume of decisions without being like good off ball players, right? Like that's just not how that's just not how your league works. And a lot of Jokic's stuff, you could clearly see the passing talent. He is uber obsessed with making decisions as fast as possible. Um, and I think that's something that has still sort of remained. He's just gotten better at it and he's added that like you mentioned there was no manipulation in his passing i think that's true every once in a while there would be like a look off and that would be it but for the most part there was not much manipulation that's something he's obviously gotten really good at but you did see some of the stuff that's now become like you know the the Jokic staple where it's like a quick little tip pass or he pick and pops because he pick and popped a lot i honestly think as we talk about like what his pre-nba cell was i think a lot of it was he was a 6'10 guy who kind of projected to shoot. And I think that was like the main sell is that, oh, he's a pick and pop big. But he did some of that where it's like quick pop. And then as soon as the ball touches his hands, rifle a pass to someone with an inside seal and like great offense. Like that's a great way to play within the scheme. But only in the NBA was he able to maximize that because he could in the NBA, you can play outside of the scheme a lot more than than in, in yearly you know in in uh, or in the adriatic league um which also produced like we, we're not talking about him but darius arch and yusuf nurkic all played in the same league uh as Jokic um in this one year probably the best individual talent year the adriatic league will ever see um so you know shout out shout out to the adriatic league for the 2013 2012 2013 season uh that was probably great fun um, but you know, or I guess 2013, 14. Um, but I guess, you know, where I'm at with Jokic is that, uh, there was clearly this collection of really intriguing parts, but he's another guy who I worry that had I been scouting at the time, I could have let fall into, I could have let fall to the wayside because he doesn't fit in a box. He doesn't fit in that, like, like clear archetype other than pick and pop big who can make some quick decisions. Um, what I will say, talking about his pre-NBA tape, I actually liked the defense more than I expected to. I thought he was a pretty plus defender for that league. Um, not this, not that he's been like horrible in the NBA, but like I think we're lying if we're going to say he's been any type of positive on that. If if he was even slightly less of an offensive player than he is, we are. I mean, we're talking about him not finishing playoff games, right? Like. That's just the truth of it. You have to be so transcendent to be as, as mediocre as he is defensively as a five. Um, but in his pre-NBA tape, like he's clearly not athletic. Like he could not jump at all. And this was like he was skinny, like at this point. Like he was not some big fat guy, like he sort of became like he just can't jump. He just does not have that. But like I thought his rotations were really crisp and like on his blocks and his steals, especially like he was really good at like when he's guarding the post, doing that little like poke from behind without reaching around to give you the spin, uh, that type of steal. Like you could clearly see the hand-eye coordination. I thought that has now become like, I mean, him and Steph Curry are like the two greatest hand-eye coordination athletes of all time or whatever. Right. Like that's just, uh, how it goes. So, uh, there's a lot of like fun little things in his game that I didn't really expect to see considering, I mean, he only played like 21 minutes a night for um, for KK Big B Max. So, Coop, do you have any other uh, uh, thoughts on on Jokic's pre college tape or pre NBA tape? Excuse me. 
So I think it's really funny that you talk about his shooting because the only two people who I could find that had anything to say about him, like pre-draft, are Wasserman and KOC. And Wasserman's whole thing is 6'11", 253. Jokic has great feel for the game. He's great in the paint, but he's also shown potential as a shooter. He nailed 15 three-pointers in 25 games in the Adriatic League. It is the longest sentence in his entire breakdown. And KOC says Jokic does everything well, but his skills as a shooter are what give him the edge over some of the other late first, early second prospects. And those percentages are average. He has fantastic touch and pretty good form. I think he'll develop it at some point. So it's so much like this era is so obsessed with big men who can shoot the three. And I, I think that goes, I, if I had to guess, it goes back to Chris Bosch and the Heatles and like their version of small ball. Um, but I mean, there's so many different things that could influence that. Um, but I mean, Jokic, it's, it's, it's almost like we talked about with him with what you talked about specifically with Embiid, like he was just put into a box. They see an overseas guy who makes really quick decisions and like has a lot of fun flashes and it's like, oh, well, he can shoot. Bring him over. He, he can really shoot. Uh, I, I think you made a great point about the defense. Um, he was like a four and he had to like rotate a lot and do a lot of that stuff. And some of it he physically can't do. But when he was in tight, when he was in close positioning, I think he really showed what allowed him to be like average defensively in the NBA. And that's just like he's smart and he knows where to be. And at a certain point, if you're like – if he was 6'10", 6'9", and like his his pre-draft size doing that, he's probably like not playable at the end of playoff games. But because he's seven foot one, humongous, or like seven foot flat or whatever he is, and like just massive with long arms, and he knows where to be and he knows when to get there and his rotations are crisp, he's able to close out games and not be like the most disastrous defender ever. So- uh, he's just... Yeah, oh, it, go ahead. It's just it, Jokic is just another example of you look at the underlying talent and what they can do, and you know, some you don't want to overthink it, right? Like it's, I, I think that's something I've been trying to do for the last few years. But it's if there's like he has like special skills, right? There's not a ton, and he has a lot of weaknesses. But if the skills that are present are truly special. That's worth taking a lot higher than, uh, you know, guys who are more jack of all trades or who are more like, uh, not imaginary, but theoretical, right. In their skill sets. Yeah. I, I, and I'll be honest. I think that, um, you know, with that emphasis on special skills, I think that's my biggest takeaway um, from Jokic is that I, 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 and it sort of has to do with Embiid too. Like I do want to be more conscious about like at a certain point, a player's ceiling is their special. And like the league is like, don't get me wrong. The league has plenty of generic players, but almost everyone in the league has some type of special to them. Uh, And especially at the top end, and it's worth taking some big swings and misses. I do want to briefly talk about the Jokic clones and the players who get compared to Jokic. The difference with Jokic, and I'm not going to name any specific names, but I'm sure you all can figure out who I'm talking about. The difference with Jokic is that he is 
so much quicker as a decision maker on both ends. And that is a fundamentally game-changing skill in a way like you could be a great passer, but if it takes you 10 seconds, you can never get to the level that Nikola Jokic is at. Like we were saying, like if Jokic is any smaller or any, you know, even like 1% worse offensively, he is not only not like really an MVP candidate, not really a, a you know, the best player on a championship team, but we would be questioning whether or not he can close playoff games the same way we do with like DeMontis bonus. And Jokic is like, I mean, comfortably better than him offensively. Don't get me wrong. And probably better than Sponis defensively too, if we're being completely honest. But like, that's the biggest difference, right? Like, like Sponis is great. I love Sponis to watch him offensively. I think he's a great DHO operator. The difference is that a read that takes Sabonis a second takes Jokic literally no time because he made that read before the ball touched his hands. That's that's the difference. And there's other guys like that who have have gotten compared to Jokic, who will get compared to Jokic. I fallen into it. I was a big Poku guy because I was like, oh, like European big who can pass. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I've messed this up too. But remember that when you're scouting guys and you're talking about Jokic, Jokic is the greatest passer ever and the quickest decision maker ever. And that was in his tape. It did not come out of nowhere. He fell to 41. And I don't know that I would have been that much higher on him than that. Like I probably would have had him. I I want to be generous to myself and say, I would have had him back into the first round, but there's a good chance I would have had him top of the second. Don't get me wrong, but you can go back to his tape and see that one special thing that was there. Even though it was used differently, it was weird. It wasn't, it was far from perfect. The special was still there. And with a lot of guys who I'm lower on, they don't have that special. So, um, Coop, do you have uh, any any kind of final takeaways from our Jokic scout? Yeah, so I'll I'll name drop because it's something that I think about as a Rockets fan. But uh, if you watch prospect Jokic, you are like, wow, I have seen Shengun, Alper and Shengun make this pass. 40 times. What is so special about this? Uh, The difference almost every single time is the setup. It is exactly like you said, it's the processing speed and it's the, it's the quickness with which he makes this decision. Shingun can make the same passes that Jokic makes, but he's six, nine and it takes him 10 seconds to set up and figure out that same read. Whereas prospect Jokic, you toss him the ball in the high post, that ball is immediately getting moved to create an advantage, right? I, I, I think that you hit the nail on the head on like 100% that it is processing speed and that the margins to be this kind of center, to be this offensively dominant, defensively, even just like mediocre, like yeah, defensively fine center are so slim that you cannot lose in any of these areas. And if even if you're just losing a little bit in every single one of those areas, you're just like, it. it's not a fair comparison to make for anyone. So let's just, let's, let's please stop doing it. <laughs> yeah. Or if you are like, say it with your whole chest, back it up with why don't just be like, Oh, like we've seen Jokic do this. So like, maybe this guy can do it too. Like, no, back, show me, show me. All right. Let's move on to back towards more towards the top of the draft. You could argue that like Julius Randle and Aaron Gordon are bigs, but we're trying to focus mostly on the five spot and the development of like the the center position. So we decided not to talk about those guys. 
We did want to talk about Dario Sarge because I thought that one, he was easy to watch tape on because he played Jokic like five times in one year. Um, but also like I, I thought he was worth a look. I think this is gonna go really quick. Um, Sarge has had a, an up and down uh NBA career. I think you know, his second so he also sat out for two years. His rookie year was the same year as Joel Embiid, I believe. Uh 2016-17. Had a good rookie year, had some moments, was kind of sold as like a stretch big. Uh eventually was trained. Was he part of the Jimmy Butler trade? Uh is that the okay? It was found, him his, way, found his way to um uh to Minnesota and was there for a little bit, played in Phoenix as like a backup five, just kind of become a journeyman at this point. Never really hit hit like the highest in outcomes, but before his draft year, or maybe it was actually after his draft year, I I think he did win like a like a uh an Adriatic League uh MVP uh was i mean kind of like he was another guy who was talked about mostly as like a stretch big um when i back and watch his tape i just thought there was like nothing there like i would have been fairly out on him if i'm being completely honest i thought he was an antithesis to Jokic, someone who is a good decision maker who took a long time to make decisions and and there is value to that and obviously sarch has had by many accounts, a successful NBA career that probably could have been more successful had he not gotten injured. And I think he'll be really good for Golden State this year. So, like, me saying I'm out on him is is to take nothing, or I would have been out on him, is to take nothing away from who he actually is. But I, I just think <clears throat> when you go back and watch his tape, it's a lot of really rote moves. And I think, uh, Coop, you you know, actually, Coop, I'll throw this to you. I know you've kind of done some research on what guys thought. I honestly don't know a lot of what the perception of Sarge was. So did you do any research into that? Do you know, like, what the NBA and what uh, draft analysts thought Sarge was going to be? Sarge was seen as the most, uh, quote, unquote, the most versatile scorer that can shoot efficiently from all over the court who is more advanced than any other player in the draft, considering his wealth of experience competing in the Adriatic League. He led Chabona or Sabona to the championship, dominated the league, averaged 16.7 points and 23.0 PER, which uh, shows you how dated this is, while winning league MVP and finals MVP. That's KOC from Celtics blog, where he wrote from at the time. Um he is said to have the highest basketball IQ and a unique skill set for his size. I think that it's this really weird combination of, wow, look at his ceiling because he is a point power forward who, like you said, three pre-show uh, could hit a, he's a six ten guy who could hit a, a, a tween hezzy. So he had upside and then he was kind of a bum slayer. So he was like perceived to have like a really high floor. Um, but he like, he was, he was, he played as a forward, right. In the Adriatic league. And when you watch his tape, like everyone talks about him as a forward, but he's so obviously a big man. Like anytime you watch his film, you're like, Oh, this is not a three or a four. This is a guy who can play the five. And can do some semi-interesting stuff as a backup guy, but like, uh, like he's talked about as a Swiss Army knife, handles the ball, facilitates scores and shoots. Uh, I think this is like you talked about. There's not a ton of like 
super intriguing stuff on the film. It's the underlying talent is not like he he goes out there and he beats up on six, seven, and six, six eight forwards. And he 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 it was really interesting because he ran off of a lot of movement. Like he was constantly moving. Uh, they'd move him and they'd set him up in the low block where he has solid moves. But if that is where you're generating your advantages and you have to have other guys set that up for you every single time down and they do feed him the ball every single time down, he's taking like 15 to 25 shots every single game. Um, like if you have to have guys set you up like that, you're just probably not a lot, a lottery talent. If you're not like an elite play finisher and your only role is like low block scorer. Yeah, I mean, I, I, this is another one where I think a lot of the sell was stretch four. Uh, and I don't know what, I, I honestly really do not know what the obsession with stretch four were. Like, I mean, and I think he's sort, I, I mean, I guess you could say he's lived up to that. Like, I, I actually think like his shooting numbers in the NBA have been fairly mediocre, uh, inconsistent at the very least. Uh, shot well, I guess, his his this last year uh which is only a year removed from the injury so uh you you could say he's been a fine shooter but um you know i i think uh to him for for me a lot of his game was just very like stagnant it's stagnant decisions it's stagnant moves predetermined stuff whenever he was overloaded with decisions i think he could really struggle and i just don't think he has a ton of like like at least watching his games back then i i'll be honest i i'm not super locked into who dario sarch is in the nba anymore but watching his games from back then i i would not have guessed there's a ton of natural feel there uh i thought the handle was pretty mid like he can actually dribble which is nice but he can't actually create advantages off the dribble so it's like okay, what's the point? I definitely agree that he was more of a five. I wouldn't say I've learned anything from him other than like, I, I do think part of what's helped him to succeed is that there is value in backup bigs having diverse skill sets. Um, if your backup big can give you a different look on offense while not being a mess on defense, that has value. But that's really all I have to take away. Do you have, do you have anything else on Sarsh or, or are you going to move on? I, I think a lot of these um, like swiss army knife types who uh, i think he does do a lot right like he does a lot at a backup big level and at a certain point that's valuable he can come in and if your starting center's injured he can give you all right minutes and not fuck up and do good stuff and you know you can if you want you could run some bench offense for him and probably like do enough and like have an interesting bench unit that isn't the worst in the league um, is that worth a lottery pick? Uh, like even in theory, was Dario Saric and the idea of him like ever worth a lottery pick? I just like, I don't think so. And I think that the idea of a 6'10 guy who can shoot and has a tween hezzy just was like too enticing for people to pass up, even though he can't really shoot, not to the degree, he can't really shoot off the dribble like that, I should say. And he can't defend enough to be a four. So he's a spot up stretch five who can't really pick and pop. And like, there's all this different stuff. Like he's a great backup at the end of the day. And I think it was maybe not super clear if you're not like 
super thinking about how he gets his buckets and how his process works. And you're just looking at the results, but his process was not super special in any way that gives him that lottery value. Yep. I, I think absolutely in agreement. He's another guy who I would not be very in on. I actually think like, I'll probably get crucified for this, but like, don't be surprised if we get eventually point to like Opera Shed Good's career is like fairly analogous. Um, that's all I'll say. Um, let's move on to someone we're going to go really quick on. No Vonley. Uh, Vonley was the ninth pick in this draft. Um, and I want to say going back to high school was an even higher ranked recruit than that because. Um, I mean, you go back and you watch the suits high school highlights, just the highlights. You're like, oh my God, is this Kevin Garnett? And I just want to point that out because, oh, he was actually, he was actually 13. So I guess he ended up about at the level you'd expect. I point that out specifically because I think for me, what I've noticed when we're talking about him and we're going to talk about a couple guys in the future, there's a lot of guys who it seemed like the NBA really wanted to. I I mentioned Kevin Garnett. Maybe you put it better when you said Chris Bosh, where the NBA was really intrigued by the idea of a big man who could who could get a little funky with the ball, right? Like whether or not the handle was actually effective was secondary to the idea that they could actually dribble. And if you just watch Vonley highlights, you would see this 6'9 dude who could every once in a while hit a super dope cross, could do like one of those little stop, LeBron, look at the ball, get into a you know a shot. But as soon as you actually watched him in games, my takeaway was that he was awful. And if, if I'm just being completely honest, that's, that's really it. Like just uh, at, at Indiana, he was really bad. So I should note, like he's someone who, like I, I say that like, oh, he was, people were obsessed with this stuff and all that. But like, you also, like, the stats were pretty good, right? He averaged 11.3 points on 52.3, 48.5, 71.6 splits. Um, like that 48.5 probably did a lot of heavy lifting. That's 64.4% true shooting. He was efficient at Indiana uh, in an offense where he was asked to do a good bit. Had a 5.5 block rate, which is really not that good, for being completely honest. Because he was actually playing the five. Even though I believe he was, I would imagine that Charlotte drafted him as a four. Uh, did you get that impression also, Coop? And then do you kind of want to give us what the NBA thought about him before the draft? He's described as a four, right? When people talk about, he's put in discussions with Randall, right? Like this guy is a forward. He is not a five, even though like he's 6'10 with a massive seven five wingspan. They talk about he gets his shots off with ease. And he hit 16 of his 33 three-point attempts during the season. Uh, this guy had the slowest load of any, like, he, like, sits there and it, like, takes him the longest time to fucking load up and take that shot. Elbow uh, way out. Like, yeah, it's disgusting. He does, like the, out, like, the flick shot with his elbow facing the wrong way. Um, so, very frustrating shot. Yeah, and everything that they talk about is like, oh, he has a great back-to-the-basket game. And then he also has the promising jumper, which he can use to stretch the floor. Uh, and then they talk about how he's the Big Ten's leading rebounder, um, which even though he only played less than 27 minutes a game, I do think that the rebounding is like, 
I mean, 27.3 defensive rebounding percentage, pretty insane. Even like he is playing with another big, even if that guy is not like a full-time center. Um, and with him, people just point to talent. It's like Vonley is one of the most talented freshmen with tremendous basketball tools. Uh, he gets called a warrior in the paint, a terrific rebounder and defender, but his offensive game has a long way to go by Chad Ford. Um, he has talked around as a player that could potentially be built around. And okay, this is this. So this is always the biggest red flag. I've done some minor work on like historical drafts and what people thought about them. And because I just find it really interesting going back and like reading this kind of history stuff. So KOC in like January, February says, no Vonley, he's far from making a huge impact. At this point, he has the highest impact or the highest upside in the draft left, right? Because he's doing a mock draft. His last big board before the year ends, Vonley's length combined with his shooting skill bodes well for his potential as a safe pick this year. While he may never live up to the high expectations of a top four pick, I would feel very comfortable selecting him between five and eight, as long as people don't expect him to be a superstar. Um, this is code for this guy fucking stinks. I'm going to be honest. They did this with Trey Lyles. Trey Lyles, if you go back and read, you can read two different scouting reports from the same person. One of them's going to say, this guy's upside is crazy. The other one is, he is so safe. His upside is so low, but he is like, he's just so safe. And it's just people think he's kind of funky. And it's like this inherent, like, oh, well, he was good in high school, so he has talent. Instead of, like, he actually does stuff that's really important to teams winning basketball games, and that's what talent is. And I think it's just this fundamental misunderstanding of what that is that leads to guys like Vonley uh, going as high as they do, which is at nine. Yeah, we'll have plenty more to talk about that, and I actually can't wait for, I think in our next spot, we'll probably, even though he's, like, not really a five, we'll probably talk a little bit about Pascal Siakam and, like, to compare Siakam and Vonley, or even, like, in this class, maybe we should have talked about, like, a Julius Randle, right? Like, those guys are conceptually similar, right? What makes one of them work? Well, one of them has a, a way to create and maintain easy advantages and what doesn't and Vonley also is just like a complete mess on defense in a way I Randall while not a good defender has never been as like glaringly awful in what I've seen as Vonley was I mean Vonley on both ends just does not know where to be when he doesn't have the ball and this is a similar issue to someone we're gonna talk about in the next spot like Thon Maker hat where it's like this guy just did not know how to play the sport and like I don't think that's like a playing time thing, right? Like there's a difference between like Joel Embiid was like fairly new to the game. Sometimes he would get in the way. Sometimes he would be late on a read versus Vonley just like didn't look like he was trying. He would just kind of stand in the way sometimes. And on defense, he would just kind of stand out of the way sometimes or whatever. So I don't think there's really anything to learn. I have never liked players like Vonley. I would have been out on Vonley. This was also sort of the death throes of the power forward position. Um, you know, there there's a great video on YouTube. You can still go find it that says it was about how Blake Griffin is the last power forward in the NBA. Uh, and that's why he's kind of fallen off. This was right after he was basically salary dumped for like Tobias Harris and like, I can't even remember, to the Pistons, where he ended up being good for the Pistons. But the, the premise of that video was, um, he was the last power forward because every other power forward had either become 
a center or a three, a wing. And now we still kind of see that. Like, sure, there's like some Julius Randles, or you could argue about Siakam, but even Siakam, like in a lot of ways, is more of a wing than Vonley was. And that especially defensively. And you just don't really see these like classic power forwards much anymore, other than really Julius Randle. And even that, like you have to be so good. And even then there's a ceiling because those types of players are just not that valuable. Um, let's move on to our last guy, uh, because that's probably enough on Noah Bonley, if we're being completely honest. I hate to be mean. Wait, I long. did have I did have one last thing. Okay. okay. Because I did learn something from Bonley, and it's the this kind of I, I don't know. I feel like it's kind of obvious if you think about it for a little bit. But if you can't, I, I, it was re- in comparison to the last guy who we're going to talk about here and Embiid, who cannot play in hedge in the NBA, but you see them at, at lower levels just dominating in hedge. And it's like, holy shit, this guy's such a good mover in like a hedge and recover scheme. And if you can't play hedge against shitty, unathletic comp, or you aren't like just the most massive human to ever exist, I just don't think you're plausibly like a good defensive big man, right? Because I think that there's something to be said for like, you can play hedge against shitty comp, then you're at least mobile enough to play in an NBA drop scheme. Maybe you're not big enough. Maybe you're not strong enough. Maybe you're not like your feel isn't there. So you can't do it. But if you physically can't move in a hedge like that before you bulk up, before you put on more pounds and you're not this seven foot, you know, one seven foot two humongous guy. I just don't think defensively you're viable. And that's Vonley. And Vonley, it's like, oh, well, maybe we can stick him as the one. No, he can't rotate. He physically cannot hit rotations and he doesn't understand them. Like he was never going to be able to be a four and he physically can't be a five. It was when they're just like, oh, he's a great low post scorer. It's like, Fuck off, man. Like, okay, I'm done being me. Done being me. Let's that's, move on to no, the, the fun that, part. That's a great point. That's actually like the, the hedge thing is a great transition to Capella because Capella played in a hedge. Uh, Capella, of course, from Geneva, Switzerland, which is, you know, a uh, great foreshadowing because his prospect tape was a war crime. Uh, that's a, uh, it's a little bit of, uh, the Geneva Convention's humor for you, I suppose. Uh, he was drafted 25th overall to Coop's Houston Rockets. Um, Man, he was fun. He he was fun, but also frustrating to watch as a prospect. And this is the one where I will completely completely call myself out and say I would not have been in on prospect Clint Capella. I just I really really hated his tape. I thought like the team was fun and like watching him run around with no idea what to do was kind of hilarious. So it was worth it. But like I thought, and he was really young when he was drafted. I I he's another one who I believe was eighteen. Uh, drafted at 25 uh, was you know s- probably like only six nine when he was drafted is now listed at six ten six eleven, um. But Coop, you mentioned that thing with the hedge, and I think that's kind of a great transition because Clint Capella is one of those bigs who has had such a weird career arc defensively because in Houston at first he was playing like normal drop D like that you would kind of expect from him, and they're like actually want to switch everything. So Clint, good luck, and like. It turned out he was kind of mobile enough to like handle being a switch big at times. And I would have put money on him being fake mobile. PD has this great concept of like fake mobile bigs. I don't know if he came up with it, but he's who I remember talking about it with the most where it's like, especially bigs who operate a lot in hedge can sometimes look mobile 
because it's actually like a really simple type of mobility, right? When you're hedging, especially if it's like a hard hedge, you're taking two steps out and then immediately turning and sprinting usually. Like if you're if you're running a good hedge, that's what a good hedge is, is two slide steps that are really quick and pre like you predetermine that you will take these two slides to the left and then you will turn and sprint back without like a, a super quick hip turn or anything, right? Like that's a good hedge when you think of it. And that's not mobility. But sometimes, and I, I've fallen victim to this too, you see that and you're like, oh, that's like a mobile moment. I love how, you know, quick he had that first step out, out laterally. That's fine. But like streaks together, long stretches of lateral mobility are just different. Like operating a switch in the NBA is just different. And teams in the NBA just don't really hedge because point guards are too tall and too smart. Like if you try to hedge like Tyrese Halliburton, he will just throw that over the hedging big. He'll throw a little hook pass or a one more. And it's just like teams don't hedge in the NBA because it just like, that's one of those defensive schemes with diminishing returns. That's kind of why I hate it. Like I, I always hate that idea that, uh, you know, I'm running a scheme to bet on uh, because we don't think, you know, we're good enough or the other team is smart enough to beat it. I think that's kind of lame, but anyways, Capella did develop into a mobile enough big and now he's sort of on this path where he's like kind of a drop big again and a really effective one he's not like a, a defensive player of the year but like he's been really good in Atlanta as a drop big like just a really solid top probably 10 ish defensive big in basketball like okay that's cool I'm happy for him Coop what was Capella's kind of pre-draft view how, how did how did NBA teams look at him so it's it's he's kind of interesting because it's like exactly what he became. Uh, he's limited with the ball in his hands. He offers big time shot blocking, rebounding, and finishing potential. He's super athletic, massive seven five seven four and a half wingspan, and a motor that just gets him like up and down the floor consistently. His athleticism and mobility are like a big thing that Jonathan Wasserman from Bleacher Report really talks about. Uh, and then probably the best KOC draft scouting sentence ever. People criticize him for not being able to score off the post, but who really cares? That has to be like the best sentence he's ever written. All I care about is his ability to set screens, roll to the rim, slam home dunks. And I think he'll develop that in time. Uh, what keeps him from being higher ranked is that he is absurdly raw. <laughs> and, and I think that that leads to I think if Clint Capella had any semblance of touch in my mind, like I would have had him absurdly high, but his touch sucks ass. Like he cannot finish a layup. He cannot finish post moves. He cannot shoot. He cannot shoot free throws. He cannot shoot anything that is not a dunk. His dunks incredible. And the, the thing that really stood out to me in his prospect tape that I think is going to become kind of central to this is that, he can kind of dribble like he doesn't dribble in the NBA, but he has like he can take a dribble and then take two steps and get to the rim. He if when he touches the ball, he is not stuck there. He is not pinned to that spot like just looking to pass out. He you cannot leave him wide ass open and expect to get away with that. Not to interrupt you, but I think that more than any like specific field thing defensively or anything like that. That that ability to not be stuck with the ball is the biggest separator between guys like Clint Capella and 
your average athletic but like questionable touch questionable hands questionable whatever college bait like like a manny bates cannot comfortably like catch take one hard dribble and rise up like that's not really in his game that's not who he is like there's so many guys who like we don't think about it because um obviously clint is not someone who's dribbling a ton in the nba nor was he ever someone who was going to dribble a ton in the nba but what what being able to take a couple dribbles is indicative of is self-organization and there is a baseline level of self-organization that you have to have to survive at the center position in the NBA. And so many guys don't have because so many seven-footers, like, like you know, humans are not meant to be that big. Like, they just don't have that. They they don't move the way you or I do, Coop, like as slightly normal-sized people. Like, people that big don't have that natural feel for their limbs and their, you know, their, their appendages and how they interact with things like Something as simple as being able to catch the ball in sort of a weird spot with your offhand, take one dribble, get into the body, and then rise up for a dunk. It's such a separator that we don't always think of, but it is a huge difference. It's probably something I underrated with someone like a Mark Williams was just that for all the problems Mark Williams had, and I still hate how slow of a leaper he is, he can do that where it's like you throw a weird pass, he can still catch it, organize well enough create a shot like that matters i think that's part of what makes quick capella one of the best vertical spacers i mean if we're being honest probably ever just because that's like kind of a low bar like if we're just being completely honest one of the best vertical spacers ever is that not only was he a lob threat who could catch a dunk but also like he didn't it didn't have to be a lob it could be a little dump off that he could you know take it take one step in turn and, and finish like he had those little things and that's so vital and it's something that I definitely overlook, and I think a lot of people overlook when when because Clint Capella is one of those guys who is going to be one of the most popular comps until he retires or until he falls off the map. Like it's just forever. I've thrown out, other people have thrown out. Oh, he kind of reminds me of Clint Capella, and what we mean by that is he has zero skills, but he can rim run, and like that's what we mean when we say that. But it's like a little thing like that that really separates Capella from his contemporaries. Yeah, Capella, Prospect Capella is full of micro skills like that. And so the fact that he can do stuff like that allows a pick and roll operator to be able to throw a dump off. Like Clint Capella, I, I, there is no single human who has caused my father more harm than Clint Capella and his inability to hit a layup. Like every time he takes a layup, my dad would scream at the TV, what are you doing? Why are you just dunk the ball? Like it, it, it is a, I, I was sending him prospect Clint film and he was dying laughing, but like he can take a bounce pass in the lane and take it and put it up or dribble it. And then like in, in an almost short roll esque like take it one dribble right up. Right. He can do a lot of really simple stuff like that. And he's like, he's quick twitch as a mover. Like if you throw him a bad lob, he can catch it and he can throw it down. He's not like DeAndre Jordan, like this massive leaper who can just like cover tons, like tons of space in an instant, but he's good enough where you can throw him a bad lob and he can catch it. He is like, I, I think you, you, we talked about this earlier. He's like an underrated athlete ever, like as, as a guy who's this big and this long. Um, and I, I think that that plus his motor is, and, and that like a lot of these micro skills, like uh, the one that really stood out to me is in FIBA, he had a seven steal game 
entirely composed of shooting passing lanes and, and poking the ball out from guys in a hedge scheme. Like he's fucking crazy as a prospect. Like he's doing shit that guys his size should not be doing. And I think that like you can't, it's a lot easier to scale down from your youth roll into a rim runner than it is to just be a rim runner and just be good at that. And I, I think that the guy who that was kind of tough for me was, was Derek Lively this last year. Uh, and I don't want to, you know, fully throw off our, our conversation, but like Derek Lively cannot dribble at all. If you throw him the ball in, in like in a situation like that, he is not doing anything with it and he's going to sit there with it. Um, like Clint Capella can pretend to have post moves. Derek Lively cannot even pretend to have a post move. There was never there in any universe. There was never going to be a world where Derek Lively would have a three steal game, right? Like ever. You could put him in FIBA against sixteen year olds, and I don't think he's shooting passing lanes and running coast to coast most of the time with the ball in his hand and making like live dribble passes like Clint Capella is, and like. You have to be able to do small stuff like that to exist on an NBA floor because there's situations where you're going to be running the floor and you're going to get a pass at the three-point line. It's like, take two dribbles. It's like, oh, no, actually, I'm a center, so I can't do that. No, that's not how it works. You're a basketball player. Like that, that is such a small thing that separates in, in, a, in a role that is so simple. It's these little things that separate the elite from the, you know, the backups. Or the guys just not in the league. Yeah, no, I think uh, I mentioned I did not like prospect Capella tape. I thought he was completely lost all the time. And uh, Coop was championing, oh, well, he plays hard. He has a good motor. I'm like, yeah, I mean, kind of. But, like, you could have fooled me because he didn't know how to – like, he had no direction to point it in. Um, and, like, that probably would have just had me out on it because with bigs generally – especially ones as simple as Clint. Like, I kind of just, like, if there's something I don't like, I'm, I'm kind of just out automatically. Like, you and, and pro, that's probably a mistake you know like someone like a walker kessler could still be really good and a lot of people are already saying that he's you know whatever and he just played for team usa and great i hope he succeeds but also like i, I still think a lot of my criticism stand um but you know i can get too uh quick to write guys off i was super low on mark williams i had him in like the 40s or 50s or something like that because i was like this guy like can't jump and uh you know i don't i don't think he can really do a lot of things but like there's still a, a place for if you're seven foot so you know seven feet tall and, and a reasonable athlete and can just kind of hoop like you just play like you've been around like that's such a boost over so many other guys like what separates mark williams and walker kessler from a lot of other guys like is that they're giant but they're giants who have played basketball since they were eight or whatever like that matters because they know how to catch a ball on the roll without it having to be like a perfectly thrown flop. They know how to quickly dunk it, duck in for just a little like high, low pass to a layup without bringing the ball down. Like stuff like that does matter. And I think I've missed on that a couple of times. And I think I would have missed on Capella and, you know, I, I I'll take my lumps there if I'm being completely honest, like that's just kind of how that goes. Um, but Capella has been a wonderful NBA player. One of my favorite, like, underrated bigs i think when he falls off he's gonna completely fall off a cliff like any year in these next three four years i think he'll just be dead but until that point he'll always be one of my favorites because he's just really solid and he, he's a perfect example of don't get too caught up in archetypes when you're talking about 
prospects. When you're just, as soon as you just say, oh, this player is a rim runner, like Quint Capella, you're missing who Capella is and who he was. And that is a, a, a really issue, a really big issue in draft scouting. And again, not, not just, I'm not just like pointing the finger. I'll, I'll point it back to myself too. Like I have done this too, where I get too caught up in, you know, oh, he's three and D if he shoots and if he defends at the point of attack, like, yes, but also there's all these little micro skills that go into actually being able to effectively do that. And at a certain point, you could only get so minute partially because we watch so many guys partially because um, you could definitely overthink by getting into the minutia. But in general, it, either extreme is bad. If you're writing guys off for like one little thing, okay, that's bad. But also if you're just like, oh, they're just in this box. I have this box of guys who's just rim runners. And you're not separating a Clint Capella from a Lucas Noguera. That's an issue because drafting Clint Capella at 25 is a great pick. Drafting Lucas Noguera at 19 was an awful pick. Like that matters. That's capital that matters. And just saying, oh, we'll just stick our hand in this pot and pick one you know, it becomes an issue. So I guess that's my biggest takeaway from Capella is like those little things, like it, even a generic player uh, matter. Uh, could you have any final takeaways uh, from, from your time watching Capella? Yeah. Clint Capella is uh, my favorite big probably ever just from like a personal enjoyment standpoint. This was the most fun that I've had film watching uh, probably ever. Like genuinely, this was like a dream come true of mine. Like, watching Clint pull up mid ranges and post ups and all this bullshit was the most fun I have had watching. Film. He did tween Hezzy. He did tween yeah. Hezzy one time. <laughs> He's a, he was a rump and I loved it. But he like, I, I, I think you perfectly put it and it's uh, like, you can't let one skill have you completely out on a guy who has like, is pretty obviously like good at other stuff and has other talents. It's like uh, Mark Williams, I think, was a great example. Like, because he, like, I, I think we tend to think because this rim runner role is so narrow that if you don't fit exactly what I want in a rim runner, then you can't be a good rim runner. But then, like you said, there's other skills that go into being a rim runner, that go into being a good basketball player. And I think that you have to broaden your horizon from, hey, look at this rim runner to how does he fit into just a team that's playing basketball and running sets and doing stuff. And even if it's something as simple as he can take one dribble and get to the basket, that adds so much more value than you think it does to these kinds of guys, or he can catch a pass and like actually do stuff with the ball and like pretend to do stuff with the ball. Even like these little things do add up. It's, it's a, it, it's a tough balancing act between like, I, I think once you get outside of that lottery, you're looking for guys who have enough skills to be at an, at a near NBA level or can, that can develop to an NBA level that can play there. But once you get inside that lottery, it's show me some special shit or, or go down and show me your talent. Like show me what separates you from these guys who I'm evaluating at a micro skill level compared to like, I, I don't think there's any world where Clint, like Clint Capella goes in the lottery. But he's so good at all the micro skill stuff that he could be at the top of your non-lottery prospects, guys. And that's a, that's a great rep. Like if you've got Clint Capella, even at like 15, if you got him just outside the lottery, incredible pick. Incredible value. 
All right, Coop. Here's the question to end all questions. Prospect Clint or Christian Goat Loco? Ooh, oh, oh, that's eating me alive. Oh, that's tough. Coloco was so fun. Dog, that guy. If he doesn't, floor. if he doesn't work out, I will forever be upset. Like I like I'm gonna be mad. Like I, I'm gonna blame Masai Ujiri and Nick Nurse. It's their fault because he should have worked. He he has to work. Like, like he has to fit. Oh, that He's makes me good. so mad. Yeah. He's okay. Before we end, I have some fun games. Okay. okay. Unless you have All any right. last nope. notes on Clint. Uh, just quickly on Clint, what I'll also say is uh in terms of how he's helped define the modern big, like Clint is sort of the and everyone else of modern bigs. Like in some form or fashion, you have your offensive bigs in the form of Jokic and his clones, right? You have your Sengoons, you have your Sabonis. Obviously, these guys are different, but in terms of like if we are getting about general archetypes, you have your um so we didn't get to talk about any really here, but you have your quote unquote three and D bigs. Um, and that's you know, guys like uh I would even throw Cat in this, even though he's not very good defensively, like that's still sort of the cell, your KPs, your Miles Turners, whoever. The rest of the bigs in the NBA, I would say in one way or another, are defined by their rim running. Uh, even guys you would not consider rim runners. Like, you don't watch Jakob Pertle and think, oh, that's a rim runner. But he is, because that's what he does. He runs rim to rim and he stays in the paint. He, you know, it with, with Clint, it's a lot more screen and roll. With Jakob Pertle, it's a lot more like, quick duck-ins and dunker spot stuff but it's still like the same idea and clint is is like the ideal version of that at this point to me not that he's the best at that because i mean obviously you have your rudy gobert's and all these guys who we won't talk about but like clint is a guy who helped define that the way the position works anymore you know following the footsteps of like a deandre jordan even in some ways a dwight howard clint was sort of not the next evolution, but a continuation of that evolution because, you know, it used to be big slanted offensively in a a way that they had to be able to punish other bigs or anyone smaller. And Clint was sort of part of the generation that switched that to where the most important thing a big could do was protect the rim. And then everything else was just sort of secondary so that's my last thought on Capella is just that he helped define uh what is now sort of the general big because when you look at the bigs who defined the late 2010s and now into the 2020s outside of the superstars it's a lot different than the bigs who defined the 2000s so okay let's hop into bonus game one I want you to guess who this statement is about. It is it is oh, any no. any oh, first no. round player, any first round big from the 2014 draft. Not just the ones we talked about. So no Jokic. That. Yeah, no Jokic. But can Blank. I cheat and look at the yes, draft? Yes, you can look at a list. You can look at a list. You can look at a list. Tell me, tell me when you got it pulled up. Okay, got it. Okay. Blank has sexy low post moves, including a fantastic quick spin into a jump, jump hook or layup. Even though he's quite chubby, he has quick enough feet to be a very good pick-and-roll defender. 
who did Kevin O'Connor write this about in the year of our Lord 2014? That's got to quite chubby. I want to say Yusuf Nurkic. Is that your final answer? I'm going to say yes. Yes. Okay. It is Yusuf Nurkic. It is Nurkic. (laughs) Yes. I thought for a second Randall and I was like, but Randall doesn't really have like, like he didn't really have like a spin hook game. He was like Lil Zion back then. Anyways, very happy with that one. Okay. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. Good work. Okay. Extra bonus game. I am going to give you four player comps and you're going to tell me who you think who you think these belong to of the five players we talked about okay so first first up a combination of amari stoudemire and wayman tisdale that's that's the first wayman (laughs) wayman tisdale which player of the five we talked about is that one amari i mean the only one who i feel like fits amari stoudemire is click fella that is uh is that your final guess? That's my final guess. That's wrong. That is Noah Vonley. <laughs> no way. <laughs> that was those were two real Noah Vonley. Like who who said that? <laughs> who could possibly watch Noah Vonley and be like, yeah, that's Amari. That's Amari. That's Star-Mari. prime Amari. Oh my god. Maybe okay. Amari was completely different when he played for the Knicks, I guess. I don't know. But like I remember Amari is like just like one of the best dunkers ever. Like Vonley, I feel like barely dunked in college. Vonley, I literally posted this fucking clip. It was the most exciting Noah Vonley dunk of his entire career. And it's coming off of a, of a pick and roll and he gets the ball and he just statue of liberties where he barely gets like an over up over the rim. Oh, it's so bad. Oh my God. Okay. Okay. Next one. Uh, who, which player is getting comparisons to Chandler Parsons? I, I mean, <laughs> it has to be Sarge, right? That's the it, only... it is Sarge. Okay. It is Sarge. Sarge is, <laughs> I just thought, I knew this one was really gettable, but like, who the fuck in their right mind is, is, is comparing Dario Sarge to Chandler Parsons? This is what I mean, though. Like, the obsession with stretch fours, because like Parsons and like Ryan Anderson were like super, like, I don't want to say popular, but like successful at this time. So everyone's like, oh, we need stretch fours. It's like, okay. Uh, but like, I, I don't but, know. It's just yeah. very, just very weird. Like, I mean, Parsons was like not good even when he got that big contract. Like, I'm sorry. Like, yeah, the he wasn't, hurt he him, wasn't but that like, good. He was yeah. not that guy. He, he just shot it well from three while being 6'10. Like, that's like a novelty anymore, I guess. It just shows how much the game has changed. But like the fact that that was like such a core tenet of team building at that time was just crazy to me. Yeah, and uh, so I I do want to give you. We'll we'll speed. These are these are two that I think are pretty gettable. Tim Duncan, which yeah. player is getting comps to Tim? Has Duncan? to be Embiid. It is Embiid. Tim Duncan is getting. I don't I don't know how you watch Embiid and get Tim Duncan, but. It's okay. He also got like 40 Hakeem comps. And I was like, that is too easy. How do you compare someone to Hakeem and Tim Duncan and not take them number one? Like, what are this, we cooking? This was all so fucked up. And uh, last but certainly not least, Jan Mahini. Uh, um, can't be Jokic, I would hope. Jan Mahimi. Who's getting comp to Yamahimi? Is that is that Clint? 
Is that Capella? That is Clint. That is Clint. Even though that's gotta Clint, be racist. That's gotta it, be. It's, it's, <laughs> see, and it's awful because Jan is closer to Vonley as a mover. Like neither <laughs> of them move very well, but Amare, Amare, the only person who comes close is Clint. Like those two, like they completely fucked up the comping here, and it is so messed up. That it, it it just it made me laugh. is not a name I've heard in a long time. Well, you haven't been listening to Matt Madruna. Obviously, yeah, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> that poor, that poor guy, the poor soul, poor soul. Uh, no, that was uh, that was great. Uh, expect more of those in our next pod. I, I would even make a request to you, Coop, to have more of that first category because that one was fun. I had, you know, I had to rack my brain a little bit. If you hadn't said first round, doesn't have to be someone we talked about. Like I might have, like my brain was immediately like, oh, it's probably gonna be someone we didn't talk about. So I was yeah, deciding between yeah. Randall I was, and I, yeah, I threw it off. But I expected an Adrian Payne one. I'll be for real because well, Adrian Payne's not a big Adrian. Oh, well, he is. Like, was, wasn't he like six ten? He's like yeah, he's like six ten. But I I don't know. He's lame, and nobody's writing sexy about Adrian Payne. Yeah. Okay. Fair. No, uh, no Big Ten player other than Bryce Sensabaugh has ever been called sexy. So all-time just... trade for the Nuggets here, like this is like an all-time draft dub for the Nuggets. By the way, to trade Doug McDermott, who I like, but like whatever at eleven for Nurkic and Gary Harrison to eventually draft, obviously Jokic at forty-one. Like, like even if they didn't draft Jokic at one, this is like an A-plus draft. Like in, in just the sense that it's sixteen and twenty-one or at, at sixteen and nineteen, excuse me, they uh, got like two. NBA starters like to also draft like the MVP at 41. Anyways, that's about all we got on this one. Uh, in two weeks, we will be back with the 2015 NBA draft. It's just a preview of what you can expect. This one uh, we'll spend quite a lot of time on because Carl Anthony Towns, Julio Okafor, Christos Porzingis, and Willie Cauley Stein were all top six picks. And we'll probably also talk briefly about Frank Kaminsky, Miles Turner, um, uh, maybe like a Bobby Portis if we're feeling lucky. Maybe I'll make Coop watch Nikola Milotinov. Maybe that's what we'll do. No, I, we we could talk some Kavon Looney. Kavon, that's that a fun. that'd be a good one. And then I mean, we could even go like even in the second round of this draft, Montrez Harrell, uh, mm-hmm. Willie Hernan Gomez, Hakeem Christmas, who we probably won't talk about, like Rashawn Holmes. Uh, oh, Rashawn Holmes is a good one. That's like, one. like, uh, you know, we'll spend some time talking about who exactly, even like Dakari Johnson, I believe, was like a guy who people were like interested in, right? Like, uh, so it, you know, we'll we'll spend some time, we'll spend some time on it, um, but we'll have that out for you in two weeks and let us know like what you thought of this, like, uh, it, you know, if, if you guys, uh, we are planning, we, we, not that your feedback will make a stop. If you guys text us and you hate it, we'll just be like, whatever, I guess, I don't know, but like, if you really enjoyed it, let us know because. Obviously, we're just trying to fill time in the offseason. Coop and I uh, don't really want to do, like, if we're just being completely honest, like, neither of us are dying to do, like, previews of, like, a, a, you know, like, a ton of college guys or anything like that. Just because, like, that's not real. We're we're an NBA draft pod, and that's what we're here for. Uh, So, you know, that's kind of where we're at. But, like I said, expect really exciting. uh, Expect some FIBA stuff. We're going to talk about some FIBA stuff mixed in with this historical stuff. But this was a lot of fun. Coop, do you have any final thoughts before we get out of here? uh so we we might have we're gonna do bigs we have at least two more big episodes so if you guys like them let us know and we maybe have some other fun positions to talk about if if this is a hit we have some other we have some other fun ideas if you guys enjoyed this historical uh, scout uh, just let us know let us know what you liked what you didn't like 
you know, just Coop is we so like, desperate. We like feedback. Coop is so desperate to make me talk about the Fox and Malik Monk. Uh, I pairing. I want it so I need it. I need it like I need air to breathe. But I, I told to him. I told him I told him that before that he has to watch uh, Evan Turner, Wesley Johnson, and Al Farouk Aminu tape. So you know, and and you're gonna make me watch Clay film. Oh yeah, He's crazy. Oh yeah, uh, that was uh, so. So we got some fun stuff if you guys want, and uh, yeah, just just let us know because, like I said, we got a lot of time for the college season starts, and even when the college season starts, uh, Coop and I have said this multiple times. We don't really like doing like week week by week recaps that's not really how either of us like to scout like you know we like during the college season coop and i are mostly kind of fans if we're being honest i'll be working i'll have like uh, i'm working with a with a uh, juco out here so i'm doing like work with that and then like i'm not dying to talk about like oh how did justin edwards and dj wagner look at kentucky this week like i'll I'll save that till they're done and then we know if they're in the draft and uh so anyways that's a long rant i'm getting tired coop uh this has been incredible um i'll there's not really anything to tag we didn't have a guest this time so i guess just uh yeah follow us at upside swings give us a like rating review uh like i said text if you like this uh texas if you what i'll say is dm us or, or tag us or whatever and let us know if there's like a different type of, uh, you know, specific thing you want us to focus on. I think we did a good job encapsulating what every prospect is and what they kind of became and how that affects us. But like, if you think we did a bad job balancing that, tell us, I guess. And uh, we'll, we'll probably listen uh, for Coop. I'll underscore underscore Coop. I'm at Bryce Hendrick 14. Uh, this has been the upside swings of be a draft podcast. We hope we are ceiling. Thank you. Thank you.